So I'm talking with Dr. Nathan Price, who's a professor and associate director of the Institute for Systems Biology, where he co-directs with uh, Dr. Leroy Hood, the Hood Price Integrative Lab for Systems Biomedicine. And I have a chance to really ask him a few questions about some of the uh, recent work that he's done, what uh, was called the Pioneer 100 Wellness Project, and then uh, the uh, follow-up company that uh, looked at all sorts of data from 5,000 individuals. I'll talk about uh, a, um, a video I heard you talking about the microbiome, and of course there's huge interest in the microbiome. There's, and you said there's uh, many different microbiomes that are interfacing with your body and understanding the metabolome uh, will be the rubric to understand what is a healthy metabolism. I wonder if you could discuss what you mean by that a bit. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. So one of the things that we have done within what we call our scientific wellness studies is to generate deep phenotyping. Uh, and what we mean by this is for individuals, we get not only their microbiomes, but we also measure their genome sequences, the proteins out of their blood, the metabolites out of their blood, uh, a bunch of different clinical labs, data from wearable devices, uh, and so forth. And so with that density of data, it gives you a rubric for trying to understand new data types, such as the microbiome. So one of the really fascinating things uh, that has been studied is that there was a, a famous study in China and it tried to develop a signature for what a healthy microbiome was. So different signatures for health and disease from the microbiome. They learned it in one province of China and then they'd go to another province of China and they would test to see if it validated. And the problem was that it didn't because the microbes in a person's body are so different depending on where they live, uh, just what microbes they're actually exposed to, elements of diet and so forth that it's really hard to get those microbiome signals to be generalizable. So what we've done with these data clouds is we've looked at the reflections of what the microbiome is doing in the person. And in particular, what we found was that the clinical labs could not uh, predict well what, what was happening with the microbiome, the proteins couldn't, but the metabolites really could. And so if you think about your microbiome, it, one of the functions it's doing is it is converting certain of your nutrients into other compounds, some of these compounds you actually need in your body. And so this has led us to this idea that one of the things we want to be able to do is to monitor for the functions of what your microbiome is achieving by seeing which of these metabolites show up in the blood. And what we published in Nature Biotechnology this year was what we showed that there was enough information in these metabolites that you could predict one of the most uh, important and, and, and really only really validated um, aspect of the microbiome for health right now, which is that higher diversity tends to be better. And we showed that you could actually predict the diversity of the gut microbiome through a, a set of uh, between 11 and 40 metabolites out of the blood. And so taking that together, what this has made us believe is that the test for what a healthy microbiome is in the future is likely to be a blood test, not a microbiome test exactly, uh, because these signals in the blood are much more stable than which microbes are actually achieving those functions. Anyway, there's a, a long introductory answer. But. Well, no, that was a good answer that allows us to get into some other 
uh, tangents on that. So yeah. tell, uh, tell me a little bit about where you see that going and where you're going to have this signature, this metabolomic mm -hmm. signature, and then you're going to be able to do what with that signature to, um, as, as I think I've also heard you say, intercepting disease at its earliest state or at an earlier state. So one of the things you could do with uh, the kind of signature we had is develop a test, a blood test for individuals who have a particularly low uh, diversity in their microbiome because that can be indicative of an infection. Now you could of course just do screening of the microbiome directly, uh, say from TCs and so forth, but that's not a very standard thing that people do. So we think it would make sense to have a aspect on a very basic blood panel, and these are getting cheaper and cheaper now. Uh, but basically, if you did that, you could alert individuals who might have uh, a problem in their microbiome, a dysbiosis, as they call them, uh, but basically that they're at a low, you know, extremely low diversity, that might indicate a problem that you'd want to go in and then do further testing. So that's a short-term kind of thing that would be very easy to deploy um, pretty rapidly. In the longer term, you know, where we're going strategically is I think what we're going to find is that there's a, a number of different uh, niches or, uh, you know, that the microbiome needs to fill for an individual. And what we really want to do is just map those out in terms of what are the kinds of things that we want to see in the blood uh, that are products of the microbiome. And in the long run, what I really would love to see is a product that sort of where you've got a test and it says, okay, you're getting all of these different areas filled by your microbiome and these other you aren't. That would then trigger going in and actually doing a microbiome test and then having strategies for how you can manipulate or change the microbiome in a way that you could then address or fill those needs. Uh, and so this could have, I think, major health effects in the long run. Uh, the science still has to get there in terms of making all the connections between the microbiome and these niches, but it's, it's really going uh, and evolving rapidly right now with a lot of great researchers uh, in this space. Uh, I've also heard you talk about uh, a couple of um, ways in which this kind of metabolomic signature and the microbiome, there's, there's a, a lot of good correlation and there's a couple of different states apparently that make uh, that correlation, that, that correlation diverges. And you've talked about, I believe, um, morbid obesity, which has some, changes some things, and then chronic or maybe uh, significant inflammation. Could you expand on that a little bit and, and what you think is going on there? Yes. Uh, so, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So when we, when we developed our uh, signature from the metabolites to predict the diversity of the microbiome, uh, we found that that relationship between the metabolome and the microbiome held up very robustly across a number of different disease cases. If you took antibiotics, you know, which really reduces your diversity down, but that was mapped by the met metabolite score, uh, went along with that. And as you alluded to, though, there was one condition where it totally failed. And this was in extreme obesity, uh, what the World Health Organization categorizes as type two or three obesity. So this is above a BMI of 35 uh, is essentially the definition. And so all the way up to a BMI of just under 35, this, the relationship holds 
uh, very strongly still. But as soon as you cross that threshold, or at least if you look at that, that upper group, uh, it totally goes away. And it's, it's not a subtle difference. It's, you know, we basically don't find, you know, the same metabolites that were really linked to diversity are just kind of obliterated. We don't, they're not there anymore uh, in terms of this connection. And so we're trying to get at the roots of that. Uh, we're pretty early on in, in, in that process. I do think that in that kind of extreme obesity that the amount of inflammation, as you alluded to, might be one of the reasons why you get this huge breakdown. But it does indicate that at some level you start having, you know, I don't know if it's different communication or different, you know, there's a different relationship somehow between the metabolites that you identify there and what's in the, uh, what's in the gut microbiome. And I think that could end up being an important element for health. We have to uh, evaluate that further. And we are diving in to analyses on the data to try to look for uh, metabolic phenotypes uh, that, uh, are that are related to this connection between the microbiome and the metabolome. But we're still pretty early stage in doing that. Uh, but we should have some results on that probably in the next five or six months or so. We should have something come out. And the other part of that, which um, you talked about, was inflammation and generalized inflammation, uh, so significant inflammation so within uh, you know, an uncontrolled autoimmune disease, or is that uh, more lower levels of inflammation that might be just associated with obesity? Yeah, here we're just, we haven't delved into that in a lot of detail yet, but the idea would be the kind of low level inflammation associated with obesity. But that's just a, one of the hypotheses for why this might hold up. What we do know is that when you get into that higher state of obesity, that this relationship with the microbiome uh, breaks down. That's, that's what we know for sure. And then we're trying to figure out why. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating thing to think about yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the level of uh, extra uh, tissue, extra adipose tissue primarily that you're carrying around has an effect on your microbiome, which has an effect on uh, all sorts of other things. Um, that's it, uh, it's uh, there's uh, that connection between us and and these bugs that have uh, traveled with us is um, is a never-ending source of wonder to me. Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating process, and we have uh, this. We have another some other work we've done, which is not published yet. Uh, it would that's super fascinating in this way because we've started to look at the microbiome in aging and in, uh, and in particular, including extreme longevity. And what we found uh, is that the microbiome of an individual, if they stay healthy, it becomes more and more unique to them over time. So in other words, if you look at people who achieve really long age, uh, really long life, their microbiomes are more dissimilar that to anyone else's microbiome in the world. This process actually starts around in your 40s and 50s. They start to see this divergence. We've got this all mapped out now. It's really beautiful, actually. And so uh, in essence, what it shows is this coevolution of you with your microbiome. So if you have a bunch of health problems or you have diseases or, uh, and you have to take a bunch of medications or things like this, this microbiome uniqueness doesn't exist. It goes away. People become more uh, similar and in this unhealthy state 
But if you stay healthy, that is, uh, you become more and more unique, more and more dissimilar to anybody else. It, gets, it relates back to the other issue I talked about and why we think the test for a healthy micro, microbiome will be a blood test, because there are these things that are in common that they have to achieve in the body, but your individual microbiome is going to be, it's really your microbiome. And so that's, that's one of the things that's really emerging uh, from the data right now, uh, which is uh, really interesting, really fascinated by. Yes. And, and so you uh, want to kind of switch to uh, what you just brought up, which is biological aging versus mm-hmm. obviously chronological aging. And, and I know you've done a significant amount of work on looking at how one determines uh, one's biological age. And, there, and, and then uh, there's uh, different ways that one can look at it. What, what are, can you at least overview a bit of what are the biomarkers you're looking at? What, how are you, uh, um, and it sounds like there is clearly some connection with the microbiome, but, but what are you looking at and, and how are you trying to use that, that uh, idea of biological aging and how we measure it? Sure. Yeah. First, just for those people who are maybe not familiar with the concept, you know, biological age is essentially the age that your body says you are as opposed to the age that the calendar says you are. And you have different systems in your body and they may, uh, you know, age at different rates. And here, as we're thinking about aging, it's really thinking about the accumulation of damage uh, to your systems over time. Uh, And so that can happen Uh, obviously at different rates for different people. So what our contribution in this area is, and we we published a paper earlier this year uh, on this in the Journal of Gerontology, but basically what what we've done is the most highly dense multi-omic view into biological aging. So we had protein measures and metabolite measures and the clinical labs, you know, the the whole data cloud that, uh, that we have developed under this scientific wellness framework. And what we were able to show was that um, we could compute a biological age that, that aggregates information across hundreds of different systems. And so from doing that, uh, the big question is when you start predicting that someone's biological age is say higher than their chronological age or lower, the question, of course, is how meaningful is that, right? Does it, is, is that correlate with, is it, uh, to something that we care about in health? And so we analyzed about uh, over 20 different disease cases uh, in the people, the thousands of people who had come through our program. And what we found was that every disease for which there was a signal made your biological age go up. So disease made the age go up. And then healthy behaviors actually made it go down. So uh, we had people who had gone through the Aravel program, and we didn't, you know, we were, this wasn't used during the Aravel program. Uh, so this was uh, not computed until, um, until afterwards, would have been, would have been uh, used. But basically what it showed was that people in the program on average uh, went down by 0.16 years per year in the program on this biological age measure. Uh, women actually went down uh, 0.5 years per year, so they had the biggest effects, and men went up 0.2 years per year. Your expected value would be to go up one year per year on this measure uh, because that's the way that it's, um, it's forced to be computed. 
And so what that showed in general, and of course we don't think, you know, that that would continue forever, but, but basically what you, what it showed was that things that were healthy, like modifications in diet and lifestyle and so forth, as was being done in the Airvale program had a tendency to move this uh, biological age estimate down and things that we think of as being unhealthy, such as uh, diseases moved it up. And so it seemed to be a pretty reasonable metric uh, associated with health. So some of the kind of things that are measured in there uh, that would be more familiar to people, certainly your glucose levels, your hemoglobin A1C, you know, a lot of things related to metabolic health. Uh, there's a lot of elements in it related to inflammation. So looking at the levels of things like lymphocytes and monocytes and certain of the interleukins that are in your uh, blood and so forth. So a whole category and inflammation relates to this biological age. Uh, the accumulation of toxins, right? So the amount of lead or mercury or, you know, other uh, toxic compounds that are in there is a big element. Uh, looking at levels of proteins and so forth. And so it's that kind of thing. But it's an area that we're really excited about because by, by looking at biological age with this very broad swipe, it gives you a lot of potentially actionable items to address. And is, uh, is something like that, what you developed, is that ready for prime time? Is that something that, uh, that you think is, uh, can be used in the next uh, couple of years by uh, clinicians or, or uh, uh, by, uh, uh, in a clinical way to help to um, uh, predict and then do things to uh, from diet, lifestyle, et cetera, to uh, try to decrease um, biological age? Yes, we do, actually. So we think that, uh, that this is uh, a very uh, useful thing that people can look at uh, and that you can make, uh, that it can be informative for certain health decisions or, and, and certainly a motivating factor uh, for making certain health decisions. So I'll just, you know, I'll share an anecdote. So at, when, after we had this paper accepted, I went in and looked to see my own biological age, which I hadn't known before because, you know, I, I was also one of the people in the, in the study and, and everyone's just coded, right? So we don't actually know who anyone is, but I, I looked my, uh, I did get the information that I had on myself. And it turned out that my biological age as I went through had gone down 1.7 years per year that I was in Airvale. So it went down to be 10 years younger than my chronologic age over the course of a little over three years, which was, I, I was really surprised by that, to be honest. Um, and, but it was very motivating to me. It was very, very interesting for me because it was such a validation, I guess, of, of so many of the different lifestyle changes I had made, which we're not trying to manipulate this score because we hadn't even computed it but that resulted in it really going down uh, dramatically. And so, but even still, like when I look at it, it tells me certain things. So my, my hormone levels are really good. My lipid levels are really good, but my, my protein is uh, actually decreasing a little bit faster than you would uh, expect uh, for, uh, you know, in the, uh, you know, with my age. So it's going down a little bit more rapidly than, than, you know, than I would like for the, in the biological age score. So I've been making modifications to, uh, to my lifestyle to try to address that. And so it's, um, I think it's a very exciting, very useful uh, metric. Now I do wanna be clear to say that the science isn't there for us yet to say 
that biological age equates to increases in longevity, right? We won't really know that for quite a while because you have to, you know, it's a long clinical, it's a long test to see if that holds up in the long run because uh, you have to watch people for some decades. But uh, in terms of just being a metric that uh, seems to reflect health in, in a lot of good ways, yeah, I do think it's uh, uh, very useful. It is an interesting metric, I think, to just sort of have a sense for you know, where you're at on, you know, what would be expected for someone at, at your age, right? And we don't, and you, and, you know, a number of these things are just associated with good health in general. Uh, and it is true, and it is very worth mentioning, not everything that makes someone look younger is good for them. You know, and this is one of the things we're, of course, very cognizant about, because as you have, uh, as you go through aging and you, you accumulate uh, damage in, in a variety of different ways, and that can be, you know, mutations in DNA, it can be uh, epigenetic changes, uh, you know, Steve Horvath and his, you know, his uh, very famous uh, clock, you know, has been a, really a great uh, marker for a lot of those kind of things, uh, it can be metabolite damage, uh, which is uh, a really interesting area, uh, so you can have all these things, uh, and so some changes as you age are the body responding to that in appropriate ways. And so sussing out what is really important for uh, maintaining health towards uh, a younger age, uh, as opposed to, you know, every, you don't want everything to move that way. So it's, there's a lot of sort of nuances to um, make out of there. What I do like about what we did in this biological age though, is that we were not actually trying to manipulate the biological age. We just were helping people get healthier. And what we saw was it naturally moved it. And so I think that's, that's uh, a good sign of it being associated with, with health in the ways that I talked about. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you to go into one other area uh, before I let you go. And that is, you talk about uh, polygenic scores and how to you know, predict and personalize which people, uh, based upon this polygenic score, which people should be using uh, you know, certain lifestyle or, or, or different uh, therapeutic interventions to, uh, to personalize to their genetics or their polygenic score. Could you describe that a little bit and, and how you've been using that? Yes, I'd be very happy to do that. So, so one of the areas that's really fascinating, so if you look at single genetic variants, usually that are fairly common, they tend to not have a very big effect size. And so they tend not to be very clinically relevant uh, because they're scientifically interesting. They point towards uh, elements that are related to disease, but their effects, you know, but they might only have a 1% effect. So the relevance for a person is not that high. But when you take a lot of these scores and you sum them together into what are called polygenic uh, risk scores, you can start to have an effect size that actually matters for what people do. And I'll just give an example of this. So let's take something like uh, LDL cholesterol, so bad cholesterol. And it turns out that you can build a polygenic score for LDL cholesterol. And you can predict with pretty high accuracy the level of LDL cholesterol in a person by their genome alone. So leaving aside everything about lifestyle, the genome predicts what a person's level of LDL will be to a, to a reasonable degree. And so what we did is we just binned people into 
five quintiles, so just you know the group that's at that where we'd predict they had low LDL and the group we'd predict would have high LDL. And when individuals went through the Aravale Scientific Wellness Program, uh, and so one of the ancillary things that a person might try to do is would be to lower cholesterol. It turned out that people whose genetics predicted that they would have high LDL cholesterol, the top 40%, we saw no statistically significant improvement in LDL cholesterol levels. But for those whose genetics predicted they could come low, we saw major improvement in LDL cholesterol levels. So what that meant was that the outcome of a lifestyle intervention was predictable by genetics. And, and you know, I had not actually seen that before. This is in our paper this uh, in 2019 in scientific reports. And it, I thought that was really striking. We thought that would probably be true, but I, I, it, I have not seen that demonstrated before. Now, conversely, there was another group that published a paper that showed that if you take statins, to lower LDL cholesterol, that if you were at the high polygenic risk, the statins worked better. And if you were at the low polygenic risk, the statins were, didn't work as well. So what that sets up in my mind is a pretty clear case for why you would want to know genetics to make a determination for whether or not an individual should be more inclined to go towards a lifestyle intervention or towards a statin. Uh, and there's a number of negatives with taking statins. Uh, diabetes risk uh, uh, incidence goes up by uh, 9% for people on statins, for example. And so when you look at that, I think it is very compelling data. And remember, everyone in the healthcare system today, basically, almost no one is using uh, genetics like this. And so we treat millions of people and make decisions for millions of people on just this one measurement alone, and we do it in the dark without actually knowing what, you know, what this difference is between their actual level and their genetics, which as far as all the data I've seen, is much more predictive about uh, you know, what, um, what you know, their health choices should actually be. That's just one measure. Now consider that we run, I think it's 2 billion blood tests uh, clinically every year. And if, and in almost all these cases, we do not have a genetics that is guiding us on terms of how we interpret these measures. I think that that is going to be viewed within the next few years as being very archaic. Because right now we take blood measures and we compare them to, you know, population averages from some years ago, you know, <laughs> trying to find the, the sources of all these data sometimes. Uh, a little bit murky, but you, we have these like ranges, but they're, they're taken as just, you know, it, but they're just averages. But everyone's genetics is different. And a lot of these things are predicted to be different by the physiology of your, you know, of, of you, you know, of the genome program that you have. And so I think there's a huge need, and we're going to be pushing this very hard to essentially rewrite the interpretation of tons of clinical markers in the context of the genome. So as we start moving into genomic medicine, this is going to be uh, a huge area. And, and the LDL cholesterol level uh, example that I showed is just one version of that. HDL cholesterol, uh, by the way, is exactly the same. People who were predicted to be able to increase their HDL levels by, uh, by the genome did. Those that were predicted to not, did not, uh, again, in our, in our program. 
And so I just think it's a very uh, compelling case to where you can, by doing a genomic analysis, identify all of the areas where you're most likely to make progress because you'll be working with your genomics genome rather than against it. And I just think that's going to be a huge area, and we're going to be pushing that very hard. And I'll, and I'll certainly talk about that at the meeting as well. Yeah, you've said uh, a lot of very interesting things in the past, uh, you know, 25, 30 minutes. And that there is uh, one of the most, I think, significant uh, kind of ways forward because we have such a plethora of um, ways that people are trying to interpret this genetic material that uh, people are going in all sorts of uh, in all sorts of kind of different tangents and I and I think it's uh, a lot of them are you know just not very useful they are they are trying to predict you know the the phenotype from the genotype and they're making a lot of stuff up quite frankly, um, and, uh, you know, that there may be certain people who are going to respond, but they don't know who's going to re respond, really. And what you're saying, I think, is how we can truly, in, in, in a significant way, personalize that genetic material, that our, our genetic code. So I think that's very exciting. Yeah, we're, we're really excited about it. It's been one of the areas that we've gotten into, because I totally agree on this. There's so much that's put out there that's really not that interesting or that actionable. But the polygenic scores, as we've fused them in with the interpretation of the blood data, has been uh, surprisingly interesting from my point of view. I mean, I, I thought we'd find some things, but you know, like the cholesterol example, for example, is to me, pretty overwhelming. When I go speak to clinical groups, which I'm actually going to go do here in an hour, <laughs> uh, go do a grand round on this, but basically, yeah, it, it's such a clear case and there are millions of people that go through this decision and it just strikes me as one of the things that needs to be deployed clinically. I think it would make a big difference. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. hopeful to push that out and, you know, maybe people will want even more evidence than we have now, uh, you know, via various trials, and we can certainly do those. But in my mind, this is a decision that's being made without this information at all right now, and I think it's pretty clearly important. So that's that's my opinion on it. Agreed. And are you publish? Have you published things on this polygenic score that uh, that we can uh, the the listeners can go towards that I can that I can find and and get more familiar with as well. Yes. Yeah, so we so on the lifestyle intervention associated with the score. That's in a paper in Scientific Reports from this year, uh, and we did put quite a lot on just polygenic scores uh, generally into the initial uh, Pioneer 100 paper in Nature Biotechnology in 2017. Uh, but the cholesterol-specific example will be in Scientific Reports, and we will have uh, another study. Uh, coming out a little bit later this year that actually maps out uh, polygenic scores and the manifestation in the blood for 54 different diseases and conditions. Uh, so that'll be coming later this year. That sounds great. Well, I look forward to hearing that, seeing that paper, and also hearing you speak at the, at the annual conference.